This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Well, it's not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Not much. Uh, I just came off of a, a six-movie marathon, just went through all of the Middle Earth movies in an attempt to enjoy my last couple weeks before the semester starts back. Um, but it's been pretty good lately. Nice. Well, I had a just came off a relaxing vacation free climbing in Utah, so... That was my week. <laughs> All right. So today we are talking about the second entry in the Mission Impossible series, John Woo's Mission Impossible 2. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> but before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and then like us on Facebook. So here we are, James. Uh, yeah. Yep. So this this movie's just got to be interesting. I like I, I, I are you still in the camp of just unequivocally hating it, James? Am I gonna have to be like the voice of a uh, positivity today? Um, you'll definitely be probably the voice of positivity. I, I don't hate watching it. <laughs> I have fun. High praise. <laughs> exactly, and that's that's the most it'll probably get from me. Um, I mean. I can sit down and enjoy bad movies all the time. So I I can enjoy my time with this. If the question is, what do I think of the quality? Um, all right. We will get there. Yeah. Um, before we do that, I asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought of this film. Shane said, neutered woo, PG-13, plus Cruz's ego equals substandard mission. It is definitely a substandard mission. Uh not sure about the Wu and Cruise part, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I think um, the Wu-Cruise combination is the only reason it's even slightly enjoyable. Um, from what I can tell from the behind the scenes uh, and just interviews, Cruise like, holds Wu really, really in high regard um, and was all about encouraging him to be as original as possible. I, I, there was an interview I read where Wu was kind of hesitant to come on initially because he didn't want to have to worry about um, matching Brian De Palma's kind of style. And that's when Cruz told him, he's like, no, no, like be as John Wu as you can because the whole point is bringing in new directors and new styles with every entry. And he took that advice to heart. Oh, very much so. <laughs> and the whole Cruz ego thing, I don't know, like that's a, a thing I've heard a lot online and like, I really don't know what to make of Like, it's not something you can go and verify. Oh, did Cruise have a big ego making this film? And obviously, it, it is kind of like Tom Cruise porn, but it, it, in a way... But then again, like, are all the Bond films, you know, uh, you know, Pierce Brosnan, Sean Connery, and uh, Roger Moore, uh, is that all, all about their egos? Just, I don't know, it feels like that's the style. Like, Wu's style in this film is just to have that super sexy, handsome hero with the awesome hair. Like, I don't know if that's just him trying to make himself look awesome or just what this movie is at its heart. Yeah, I, I think there's there's not a real appreciation for what Cruz is doing with this series, which is like, this is this is his baby. You know, it's, it's not like 
he's hired to come on to a series and then he tries to exert some sort of control he created a production company and this this is the baby that came out of it so i think any sense of control he has over it is really pretty warranted and and i mean we just got mission impossible fallout so really i say let him have all the control he wants because I mean, yeah. so far he's been doing well all right and then john said uh, mullet impossible i wish it would have worked on the ridiculous level it aimed for but instead it's a day glow vault of bad 90s videography cliches and you're not wrong although technically that's not a mullet see as it's the same length everywhere it's just uh 90s hair i guess oh man and then our friend ryan wall said i try not to in response to <laughs> what does he think of it and on twitter ramsey at jx stram said for all its flaws for all its style over substance i do find myself entertained by the film the sheer melodrama borders on parody at parts but i do find it somewhat enjoyable it also contains tom cruise's best hair in the mi franchise definitely <laughs> and uh none of that's wrong either there are times where that hair just can't be argued with. And then there are other times where you, yeah, it's kind of laughable. <laughs> uh, all right. So before we move into the main discussion, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, behind the scenes making of this film? Yeah, so to talk about the concept, uh, there's really not a whole lot about this movie out there. Um, but there was uh, quotes that I found from Wu and Cruz and Wagner that kind of help us piece together what they were aiming for with this film. Um, like much, pretty much the majority of the series, uh, the set pieces and sequences came first and then a script came along to string them together. In this case, it might show. So one of the things that I noticed is kind of a consistent theme across all of the interviews and quotes I could find is um, John Woo kind of considered this a romantic drama first and foremost and an action movie secondly and it makes a lot of the quotes i dig up somewhat humorous given the the final um the final film um but th here's a quote from from wagner cruz's producing partner um she said this movie is different from the first mission impossible this is a more personal story. We get to see a more romantic side to Ethan Hunt, with, uh, Ethan Hunt within the framework of an exciting action drama. So the script originally featured uh, Ethan Hunt and Hall ashing, uh, hashing out their new relationship via conversation just in a room, but Wu thought it was too boring and opted instead for a phone call during a car chase because he said the whole scene ended up being more funny, sexy, and romantic. Um, <laughs> and, and so some some um i guess last quotes uh that i could find that kind of summarize just the overall opinion of the of the movie they were making what they were setting out to do is um so wagner said we were both huge fans of john woo speaking about her and cruz she said john has incredible passion for his work he happens to be the greatest action director in the world but he is also enormously concerned with the human struggle the vulnerabilities conflicts and romance he is also very much a humorist uh john and tom are a dynamite combination and then uh cruz said john woo is unbelievable he's taken the concept of mission impossible and turned it into mythology his action has a combination of reality and surrealism that makes the emotion in his pictures very real. Um, and then lastly, a quote from Wu. Um, he said, I always like to do something new, something I've never touched before. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity to do that. 
One of the most important aspects of the story for me was the human element. I wanted to make it full of drama, emotional and charming. I love the idea of the two men being in love with the same woman. It gave the story much more emotional depth. And, uh... And, but, just before you jump into mocking him, I think that is... Uh, there, there is definitely a thread through all, all of his... At least the American films I've seen for him. He does really try to go for that kind of melodrama. And I mean, he, whether or not he's good at executing it, all the ones I've seen, they do try to have a, a, a you know, really compelling emotional core often involving a romance. Yes, and the thing is, I'm actually a, a fairly big John Woo fan myself. I, I really like, I, I really love the, the hard-boiled movies, even to the point of, you know, buying the video game continuation of it. And, and I think his style works really, really well when he's just telling a John Woo story without being in another franchise. Uh, but here, I just... <laughs> You know, and I'm not intentionally mocking him. I just think, I think the movie missed the mark it was going for, um, and I'm sure we'll end up talking a lot about the romance as it goes on. And, yeah. Um, so as far as the writing, um, Robert Town, who was one of the writers on the first film, is the credited writer for this movie. Uh, story credits are also given to Star Trek: The Next Generation writers Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga. Although how much each party contributed is, I'm really not sure. So for the cast, it's pretty straightforward. Um, Cruz obviously returned as Ethan Hunt. Tandy Newton was cast as Naya Nordoff Hall. Ving Rhames returned, who happens to be my favorite recurring character in the series, as Luther Stickle. Doug Ray Scott is here to chew every bit of scenery in <laughs> Eyeshot, uh, and he plays Sean Ambrose. Brendan Gleeson is criminally underused as John C. and McCloy. And he's a uh, criminal. I know, it's weird. Uh, Richard Roxburgh uh, was cast as Hugh Stamp John Polson as Billy Baird Rade Sherbegia as Dr. Nikorvich also known as Nice Coat Man from Batman Begins <gasps> oh my gosh I did not realize that wow I'm going to have to go back and look at that that'll be funny um, William Apther as Wallace Dominic Purcell as Ulrich Matthew Wilkinson as Michael and Anthony Hopkins as Mission Commander Swanbeck, uh, and it's actually an uncredited role. Uh, the only bit of information I could find about any of the the casting outside of the final cast was Ian McKellen was actually originally pursued to play the uh, the Mission Commander. However, um, he was interested in playing, but there was scheduling conflicts that uh, that arose, and so they sought. Um, Anthony Hopkins and apparently this was a uh, very daunting to to John Woo just because of how prestigious Hopkins was as a and still is as an actor I wonder if uh, McKellen could have made him any more sleazy <laughs> so the majority of the film was shot on location in Sydney Australia the rock climbing sequence in the opening was shot on location in Utah there's a very famous story surrounding the production of this film uh, regarding Dugray Scott. Um, he was originally cast as the Wolverine in Brian Singer's X-Men film, uh, but shooting for Mission Impossible 2 ran way over schedule, so Fox had to replace him with an unknown Aussie actor, Hugh Jackman. And while I, I, you know, I rejoice every day that Hugh Jackman, you know, got to play that role and do so so much good work with it, and you know, become the superstar he is. I honestly don't hate the idea of uh, Scott in this role either. I think, like, especially in this film, he has that kind of 
seething rage. Well, in this film, I think it's like seething libido or something. But, but there is he, definitely, he feels like he's constantly boiling and about to erupt. I think he could kind of capture that you know underlying anger and frustration that Wolverine has to have. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see. I feel like I want to see more from Scott outside of here because what this film demanded was kind of like this melodramatic kind of ang- cheesy anger. Maybe, you know, it's only cheesy in hindsight, but um, it'd be nice to see what he's like in a more intentionally self-serious role. So uh, supposedly Wu's direct, first director's cut for this film was over three hours long, and then the studio mandated it be, it be cut down to no longer than five hours. The, the final runtime is two hours and three minutes. Um, and I kind of wonder, you know, you're talking about Wu wanting this to be, you know, a romantic melodrama. If there was there was a lot more of the drama stuff, I, I hardly imagine they cut out any action. You know, the, obviously, you know, they, they paid a lot for the action, so the studio wouldn't want him to cut that. So I'm assuming what was cut out would have been the more quiet, dramatic moments that this film is. You know, like all there are a lot of them in this film, but they don't work. I wonder if he, they actually had his full th- three hours; it could have actually worked. I don't know. I don't know that I want to sit through three hours of this. <laughs> But like the, the same, at the same time, this film is very sorely lacking in a dramatic core. Hans Zimmer did the film score. Uh, he, he used vocalist Lisa Gerard for the second time in 2000. Uh, he had and he had her perform almost identical work in Gladiator earlier that year. The metal band Limp Biscuit did a song for the soundtrack called "Take a Look Around," that was used with uh, that, that used the Mission Impossible riff. Uh, it's kind of terrible, like very late '90s. Ugh, not very good. Yeah, uh, just another reason why I do not enjoy Limp Biscuit. Uh, um, and so finally, it was released on May twenty fourth, two thousand, alongside Dinosaur, which was a movie, guys, and Shanghai Noon. You are you darn right. Dinosaur was a movie. That was one of my favorites as a kid. I liked it as a kid too, but it's it's that's a weird film. Another day. So James, do you remember your first time viewing this film? Was was it this year or last year? It was not this year. Um, it may have been a couple years ago. Now. Okay. Um, so I think I think I talked about this uh, during the first episode over Mission Impossible. Um, but there were I forget how many, but there were several of them on Netflix, and so. I watched the first one, and as I stated earlier, um, in, or last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, that my first viewing of Mission Impossible 1 was not super great, and I thought it was okay, but it did not live up to the hype that I had seen for it in a lot of like film groups. Uh, and so then I moved into Mission Impossible 2, and thoroughly hated it the first <laughs> time, completely. And it kind of deterred me from continuing and then i saw that three was kind of the revitalization uh revitalization of the series so i wanted to get back into it however with not really enjoying the first one very much and then really loathing the second um there ended up being a long amount of time between first seeing these two and then re-getting back into the series and i've i've mellowed out on it since this is (laughs) exactly so take from that what you will. I, I do not think it is a good movie at all. Um, however, in a group, it can be a really, really fun watch. And I think that's probably where I'm going to ultimately come down on this movie. Okay. Um. So I I saw this I, a long time ago. I, I, remember, I think it was shortly after seeing the first one. 
probably as an early teen. And this was the time where I would have been like a completely self-serious film viewer. Like I could not like anything self-aware or cheesy, even if intentionally. So it was like, oh, it's stupid, whatever. I hate this movie. And so that's kind of what I was with this movie. I just kind of, I just hated it. Oh, it's stupid. Low look, slow-mo, long hair, whatever. Um, and I think I saw it like once or twice over that time. And, you know, it was just, oh, it's really stupid and kind of boring. And then I watched it, I think a year or two ago. And even then I wasn't fully appreciative of John Woo as an artist. And it was just, oh, this is boring. And then this, the fine, and then I rewatched it last year in preparation for Fallout. And I kind of, it kind of almost did a 180 on it. Like, I don't, I don't really love this film. And we have like a, a lot of criticism for it. However, so I just kind of clicked with John Woo's style. So basically, even though I still have a lot of problems with the drama and a lot of problems with the plot, whenever John Woo was doing his crazy thing, I just fell in love with this movie. And that's kind of where I am now on this latest rewatch. Uh, like kind of like very much of two minds. Like one half of this film is absolutely terrible. The other half is like a masterpiece. So just going into the, the, the I think the main thing that stands out to you coming into this film from the first Mission Impossible film, movie is just uh, Tom Cruise's vision of trying to reinvent this series with each film by bringing in a new director with a very distinctive style and letting them go to town and do whatever they want. In this case, I think most people would agree it's a misfire. However, I think it, it just, it shows a lot of just a lot of just confidence and courage. And, and I think a real understanding of, of what what these action films can be and i think since then with by being a little smarter and more more intentional i think they have been able to f- mold this series into something really special b- by pursuing that that same dream of a new director and a new style but here i feel like they're still trying to get their legs and i i i, I honestly i feel like they were trying to make a born uh, not born from a bond film um this, this this film feels a lot like bond in many ways that the previous film did not Number one is just the, the the character of Ethan Hunt in this movie. Besides being played by a guy who looks like Ethan Hunt from the previous film, has no has there's absolutely no resemblance between the two. You know, in the first in the first one, Tom Cruise played Ethan in in a very kind of subdued everyman way, where as he talked about, you know, he wasn't the he wasn't the strongest or the best fighter, or even necessarily the smartest man. He was just the most determined guy that will risk life and limb and do whatever it takes to finish the mission. Here, Tom Cruise is this like huge, like is this gigantic personality. He's a playboy, a womanizer. He's just you know, um, he goes free climbing in Utah just for the fun of it on vacation. He's got this long flowing hair. He wears sunglasses everywhere. It's just. This guy is pretty much an American version of James Bond, where it's just is just all that huge kind of personality just driving driving the uh, the show, and uh, I don't really I don't think it entirely works. Like it's it's I, I have fun watching just and just kind of laughing at how ridiculous it is, but like even if you ignore the aspect of this being in a film series where you you. You're taking an established character and making him, you know, a diametrically opposite character. I think it's it's still just. I don't know that he entirely sells, despite him, you know, being such a smooth and charismatic person. Maybe it's just the writing, but I I don't think that that, that kind of personality works nearly as well as say like a Sean Connery or a Daniel Craig or uh, Pierce Brosnan. Like I think like they could pull off that kind of smooth, suave things better than Tom Cruise did here. Yeah. So. 
I thought he played this kind of role well. Like I, I did personally, I didn't really have any problem with the way he played it in terms of his ability. You know, he all he's got to do is is um you know move his head and let his hair flow around. You're like oh yeah, that guy's a he's suave according to '90s standards. Um, but I you know not putting aside the fact that it is in a film series continuity in franchises means a lot to me it's where a lot of my hang-ups on sequels come from and so (laughs) naturally that ended up being a big problem for me here and despite the fact that i would be very vocal that this is my a huge criticism i have of the movie i don't want to be unfair and lay it all at the feet of john woo uh negatively just because he was very much encouraged to tell a john woo story um so I think he just did what he wanted to do and he was encouraged to do that. But in terms of my enjoyment moving from the first one, it's really it's really hard for me to enjoy this film knowing that it is supposed to take place however many years after the first. And you know, like we said before, so much of my appreciation for the first one comes from it not intentionally aping Bond or or anything else. It was very much through and through a, a spy movie. Um, so yeah, I, I think Wu did okay with, with what this film is. And I think Cruz played that part, um, perfectly fine. It's just within the context of the series, it doesn't really work. And just as a movie, it's, it's not really, really my cup of tea. I, likewise, I wasn't really a fan of of that era of bond either so um there wasn't a whole lot of reasons for me to enjoy this film based on my own personal tastes but going back to positives i think you know whatever you think of his crazy 90s style this is a very good looking movie the shots that john woo gets are just just like just beautiful like all over the film, there are just so many lovely shots, and whether the slow mo is necessary or not, it's just nice to look at. Like even so, even while whenever the film is just being eye rollingly cheesy, there's always just something nice to look at in the frame. And I, I think that I think that goes a long way in just in making this film a, a decent experience because you know it's never it's never once boring to watch from a visual perspective. You know that that just starts right at the opening. You know when he's rock climbing, just the camera swooping around and. It it even it, it's so stupid, but it's so it's honestly I think it's it's really fun, and then it just gets more and more ridiculous. Like when, uh, uh when Tom when uh, when uh, Ethan and Naya first see each other, <laughs> and it's it's like it goes into this slow mo with the kind of these where it'll transition as the dancers spin across the screen and it's cutting back and forth. Like as they're, you know, they're like walking around the dancers, the dancers are in the background, their dresses swirling. It's all slow-mo and you have the, uh, the gladiator vocals and kind of in the music. And it's just like, Oh, love at first sight because I mean, I guess it literally is because they're, you know, within, you know, an hour they're sleeping together. I guess, I guess this is what John Wu thinks like, you know, high, high drama is or something yeah so i actually kind of do enjoy that very first scene and i don't even know if i could put my finger on it but there's something about the way he shoots it there where this kind of heightened surreal kind of drama and and visuals work at just the right level um where i can i can enjoy how cheesy it feels 
one, just it is well shot. Just the way we it, we keep cutting between the dancers and between them locking eyes for like five minutes straight, and then. <laughs> but it, it's fun. The, it's only the first time. Only the first time, and then I'll have some problems after this. But but that first meeting, I think, is is fun in the right kind of '90s way. And I, I think the the whole meet cute they have at this party is actually really good. I think Tandy Newton and Tom Cruise have decent chemistry together. I think the whole thing in the bathtub is is just it's just a a, a sequence that's pretty well set up, um, and that, that I think you know plays very well into the style of you know the Mission Impossible. <laughs> just, you know, I mean, it's so ridiculous. You know, but but they, I think they have enough chemistry. I think the banter between each other is fun. The whole thing's just like oozing sex with people constantly getting shots down her dress. It's just it's obviously trying to be very sexy, but. And I think it, it it just it just pulls it off because of how much chemistry those two actors have together, and and the, just the way it plays out, you know, the way he trips the alarm, and then the the guys come and point the gun the guns at him, and it's like, oh, he's he's the he's the security advisor, which is I think is is a really good gag. Um, and then you know he makes her give the next spec, like, what are you trying to do, rob me? The thought had crossed my mind. Um, so that I think that whole thing is is actually a lot of fun, and like if if they had actually had a decent romance to follow it up, this would have been a solid start. Yeah, and so I think a lot of my thoughts on this scene are contingent on what they do with the rest of the film, and so nothing in hindsight. Exactly. So in hindsight, um, and on rewatches, there's something about it to me that feels just like kind of sleazy, um, <laughs> you know, especially considering one of my biggest frustrations surrounding her character is that we get this introduction that she's capable, you know, she didn't even set the alarm off, he did. Uh, so she is, she is a very, you know, effective cat burglar, uh, proficient in her own right. Of course we would recruit, recruit her because she has the right skills. Only we're recruiting her to go and seduce her ex-boyfriend. It's, yeah. they, I really dislike the way they use her. And so then when we go back and we realize that this... Well, to, to be to be fair, Ethan did not know that at the time. True, but I'm just meaning in, within the the context of the film as a whole, mm-hmm. um, because John Woo knew that, uh, and so on a rewatch, it's not like this sex appeal of the scene is working hand in hand with just a, a character who ends up going on to be strong. Anyways, it's we introduce her, really doubling down on the sex appeal. And then use her for the rest of the film because of her sex appeal over like the villain. It just it feels almost like borderline gross. I wouldn't go that far, um, but it is weird. I was reading different reviews just to kind of see because I I don't think that this character would be responded to well at all today. So I was just like looking through reviews um, of the film back then, and I found this little snippet that I guess is a maybe a good indicator of, of how these kind of portrayals were seen back then where one of the reviews said um Cruz and Newton delivered the windswept performances perfectly suited to a summer blockbuster an opening scene in southern Spain thrust the viewer into the position of looking down Newton's shirt indicative of Wu's cinematic admiration of the leading lady throughout the film that's that's <laughs> not untrue that is very it's... indicative oh yeah um, um but admiration is a <laughs> I mean I guess but but anyways, so like I said, if if the rest of the film were different, I could look back on this and see like, oh, what a fun start to this character. But because of the way she's used, I'm like, oh, like 
this is how they introduce the character and this is how they continue with the character. Well, they do introduce Tom Cruise shirtless. Fair enough, but he also gets to be super <laughs> cool for the rest of the movie. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know that John Woo actually thinks about things in the sense of a narrative. I think he just, oh, this scene is, he just wants to make this scene that he's making this scene. And I think, you know, for what that scene is functioning and for what you think you're going to get, I like it a lot. But since you did bring it up, I wasn't planning on getting to it so soon. I think we should dis- you know, discuss the, the problem of Naya in this movie. And I think it's such a huge frustration because every time I go back to rewatch this film, I'm like, oh my gosh, I really like Naya as a character. Tandy Newton is, you know, is, is a lot of fun. I think, you know, she, she's a match, you know, she matches wits with uh, Ethan. She's capable as a thief. Like, this is, this is a really fun dynamic. And then we meet Anthony Hopkins and he says one of the grossest lines in all of cinema, uh, t- what, to go to bed with a man and lie to him? She's a woman. She's got all the training she needs, which is just a little, uh, no, um, but that, that, what's worse is like he is one of the good guys saying that, and that line is never like that line is never even repudiated. It's just it just sits there, and 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 then the, but like even worse than all of that, like even if you say oh, obvious, even if I I don't think John Woo shares that perspective, but the film never pushes it back against it, and then once as soon as Naya, as soon as Ethan you know, gives Naya the news, you know, she's rightfully insulted. And I, I almost wish like she just told him to go to hell right then and there. And then, you know, went throughout the rest of the film as one of the team members on Ethan Steele. Like think of how much more entertaining a movie this, that would have been if you had like Ethan and Naya next to each other the entire film. Yeah. I think that would have really helped the film, especially me enjoy the film because I think this was really lacking in the kind of team dynamic. I love Luther, but I mean, he, there's not really a lot from him here in terms of like memorable scenes and quotes and stuff. And I've already forgotten the name of the other guy who just shows up. <laughs> I, do, uh, I do love his first scene where he's just crazy Aussie guy. Oh yeah. They set up a fun character. It just the dynamic itself of this team never really feels fully established. Like yeah. in, in later ones, that's why Ethan Hunt is the lead, but it's a, it's a team Whereas here, it just feels like these are a couple guys that uh, that Ethan talks to every now and then. And I think by, you know, including her in a way that's utilized more, it could have really established some sense of ban- consistent banter through missions that would have been a lot more fun. And, and if she had just told him to go to hell, it would have made me respect her character a lot more. It, yeah, exactly. And, you know, just about that line from Anthony Hopkins and... It, to me, it's troubling when you have quotes like that and a quote from the villain where he says, um, one can't hold Nia responsible for her actions. You know, women mate, like monkeys, they are, or like monkeys, they are, won't let go of one branch till they get a grip on the next. And it's, if that was isolated solely to the villain, that's fine. You know, he's a villain. However, when you can't really distinguish the sentiments towards uh, women f- between the good guys and the bad guys, and like, this is just kind of a sentiment being shared by numerous characters. It just feels like this is this is a sentiment of the movie towards these characters. And it just it never feels right throughout when these these horrible lines just randomly show up. Yeah. And I have no desire to be like the woke movie podcast. You know, goodness knows there are way too many of those. But I, I think a lot of this comes back directly to the narrative and it very negatively affects her as a character beyond just the grossness of, of, you know, asking a woman to go essentially prostitute herself to 
the villain for uh, just a tiny bit of information. It just that, that on its own is incredibly vile. But what it does for Naya as a character is the at the, the moment she agrees to do this, her character is gone. Everything that made her so such an engaging and likable character is one hundred percent absent for all but one scene in the rest of the film. You have you have, an, you have another hour and a half where the second lead ostensibly is just completely like neutered as a character. Like she's just sad and used. And I don't I don't want to see that. Um and it, she like she just kind of sits around and you know she's used by, used again and again by 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 Ambrose and then you know she and then she you know the, the one time she has a single thing to do, she messes it up and Andrew Ambrose you know, feels her pickpocketing him, which is which is again really annoying. You know, because they established her as a good, a really good thief. Um, so she like she, not only does she not actually do anything for the, uh, you know, aside from one sing, one single scene, which I'll talk about later, she's just like m- she just looks so miserable, and like that, and she just takes most of the personality of the film with her. And one thing I think I could have fixed a lot about this, you know, I, w- I still would have problems with it, is if in the end it had been her. That that shot Ambrose instead of uh, Ethan. Oh, I really wish that. That's what I thought. Like, that, like imagine if that had happened. Like, you know, she like they're they're all there. You know, Ethan's looking at her, and then you know Ambrose picks up the gun behind her. Imagine if Ethan had like gone for the gun, you know, in that stupid kick thing, and been shot. <laughs> like, you know, Ambrose is as highly trained as Ethan is. There's no way Ethan should have been able to pull that on him. Like, if he had gotten shot in the shoulder, and then and then Naya pulled out, you know, grabbed a gun from Luther or something, and shot and shot and shot Ambrose. Like. Then you could have had like a full emotional arc for a character. You know, she was she was used by him, and you know, used and abused by him. But then she, you know, she comes back and kills him in the end. Like you would have had that would have actually meant something. You actually given her a conclusion. As it is, she's just like just used throughout the entire film, and then Ethan saves her in the end, and then happily ever after. And like her character never gets back to being what we liked about her in the beginning. She's just miserable, and it's it's it's, it's she's miserable, and it makes the movie miserable. <laughs> Yeah, and it, also it, to me, it doesn't help. And you mentioned it before that, like we get, you know, and I'll concede that the introduction is well done. Um, we get the the silly car scene. I'll just save my <laughs> thoughts for that later. Um, but just after that, she falls in immediately into the role of just the love interest because we move from that car rescue to like them in bed together because that's what you do after you almost die don't you know that's what you do in a bond film but (laughs) here it just yeah i mean it's you know like whenever they do it do something like this in bond um we can talk about we we don't have to talk about the fact that it kind of glorifies us in bond however we know he's he's seducing them we know we understand that it's not like actual affection barring things like um casino royale whereas here this is like it feels like it's an actual or it's trying to be an actual portrayal of of a relationship and the fact it's that we true eternal love man i um, maybe i don't know but it just it feels weird and again it's like it's hard to take these scenes in isolation because of how we know the story unfolds after this so so with that first scene and like shots where we're pretty much just looking down her dress and then a scene later and they're sleeping together that to me hurts the film whenever it goes on to use her in the way it does and so like even these opening scenes that might be funny of themselves 
I can't really take them by themselves because of the movie as a whole. Yeah, I think you're giving this film more thought than anyone making it did. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Like, that is a large problem with this film. Like, both just on an external, like, this is icky level, and I think on an internal narrative level, um, where it just makes the second main character, you know, kind of useless for most of the film. And it also, by, by giving them literally, I'd say, what, what, 12 hours together over the course of the entire yeah, film at very most? Minimal. And then them separate for the rest of the film yeah, their 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 melodramatic romance is like the heart and soul of what Rue is trying to accomplish yeah it just doesn't work um so back, back before we go to my biggest problem with the movie let's go back to some let's go to some of the positives and i think whenever this movie does have action i think it is pretty great um or just like just woo being huge and dramatic like just the, the way he shoots a speedboat <laughs> Uh, you know, going across the water or a helicopter flying. It all looks really cool. But the action scenes, I think, are pretty spectacular. Um, the, la- the lab heist and then the subsequent gunfight, I think, is just like a little masterpiece inside of this movie. I feel like this is where Wu is t- able to do what he does best, which is like action storytelling. And they, they do a similar thing to, to the uh, Langley heist, where for like the first five minutes, there's no music. It's all just ambient sound. Like when he jumps through the he jumps through those revolt those uh whatever that kind of grate up top of, and then falls all the way down and then he's hanging by the window and then he flips over and does that perfect silent cat landing, uh, but that whole thing where he's going through and destroying the uh, destroying the virus it's all done without without music and I think it's pretty well done and then once the action fight starts the the action scene starts oh it is it's just glorious it's. You know, it's everything John Woo is known for. You know, gunfire, a lot of quick cuts and, you know, snap zooms and the the pyrotechnics are everywhere. Just sparks from everything is sparking and slow motion. And I, and I think it's the the, the, uh, the geography is really well laid out. You know, it, it, it a lot of it is very quick cut, cutting back and forth, cutting people shooting. But I think he uh, laid out the geography where you know exactly where each person is to where, you know, he, he can do that kind of quick cutting and it works pretty well. But then what I, I think what I kind of love is once Naya is brought in and, you know, they have that standoff where he sends her to go get the last vial of the the virus. And, you know, the entire time he is just being like the most, the like spewing out the grossest, most misogynistic lines. And I, I do love the moment where she just kind of looks at him and looks back to Ethan and then injects herself. And then the music kicks because you and, and I like it because. Naya is finally actually actually doing something, you know. As a character, she's you know acting out of defiance to Ambrose, and I love her. You know, you're not going to shoot me, <laughs> not this blank, because you know, this blank is worth fifty-seven million pounds. And just watching <laughs> Sean just like <laughs> seething, um, and then the, I think the music is really good. There is like full bombastic opera with with electric guitars, and you know, you who doesn't have a conscience? I guess I lied. And I, and I I just think the way that sequence is built, as all like all the sparks in the world are flying everywhere, it's slow mo. People are being shot. Ethan's like you know, you know sliding slow mo across the floor with two pistols. It's just it's all happening. I think it's just this beautiful little. It, remi- it reminds me actually a lot of like Zack Snyder when he when he does one of his like epic slow mo sequences where it just feels like every little thing in the frame, you know, the music, the visuals, the the sound design is just coming together to make. Just a, a 
incredible sensory experience for the viewer. And I feel like this is one of those sequences, basically from the time where she injects herself to where he blows out the wall and jumps out. I, I just love everything about this. This is just a little masterpiece of a scene. Yeah, this scene is probably one of the, maybe the only scene that I just like, I really do enjoy from start to finish, um, like diving down through the graves as they're opened and kind of, you know, the intentional references to the first with the like cat light movement on the wire and stuff. Well, just trying to interrupt you, but one little, one really fun touch is, you know, we mentioned in the previous podcast that we like how they have them narrating the plan for the for the heist as they're they're being shown executing the heist and i think they did a really clever twist on that where now you have ambrose uh you know narrating the heist as they're doing it and he's you know he's on top of it the entire time he's talking about he'll undoubtedly engage in some acrobatic insanity before risking a hair on a security uh, security guard's head like he's doing that as he's like getting ready to jump out of the the uh, helicopter. I I love just it's kind of a bit of self awareness and I think kind of a clever twist on a scene that I really enjoyed in the first film. Yeah, it feels like a really good subversion of of that kind of trope where oh uh, this guy's gonna get it done because he does it in the unconventional way that nobody's ever gonna call. And so to have a villain be like no this guy like being unconventional is almost conventional now for IMF. And so I think it was a really cool twist to have him narrate, especially since whenever we're seeing the scene from Ethan and them, it feels like in another film, this is cool. You know, like it's like, oh, man, they're getting it done their way and uh, nobody's going to see this coming. And so for them to, to shoot that scene like that, while we, the audience, know that the villains, uh, the villain knows, uh, it was definitely really cool. And, uh, and yeah, the shootout and everything that follows is really cool as well. I just think kind of like the lighting of that scene is really cool and like assisted just by the constant sparks flying around everywhere. And, and I mean, as ridiculous as it is, you know, if you have a guy running into a room with dual pistols, just kind of leaping around shooting, like it's, and it's being directed by John Woo, then it's going to be really cool. Um, and one of my problems with the action in the movie is that every time I'm starting to think it's really cool, he kind of jumps that last shark and I, I lose interest <laughs> in it. And I feel like this was a scene where even at its most ridiculous, it's still grounded in, in some sort of like, it's not believable, but I don't feel like I'm having, I'm ever to the point of like rolling my eyes at it. And so I don't hit that point in this scene. And so by the time it ends, I was like, oh, that was really cool. And for some reason, the, the shot of him actually jumping out of the building always sticks with me. The way we kind of follow him out, it's a really cool shot. Yeah, and going, going back to the cast real quick, uh, I just love the way uh, Sean Ambrose, uh, Dugray Scott playing him, is just monologuing throughout this entire scene, even though that's where some of the real gross lines come in. He's just like, he's just so in control of everything and, and so, like, so overconfident, but also so angry about everything. And, <laughs> and Scott is just chewing through every line. And, like, I, I genuinely wonder how this performance would work for, like, a Scottish person. Because I'm sure about 97% of what I love about this about this performance is just Duke Ray Scott's accent. Uh, 
but yeah, it is. It is just so fun. I'll, you know, stop. Put a sock in it, which is a, a, a term that I love for some reason. Oh, uh, yeah. it's always great to hear a villain spit out lines like "put a sock in it." Or like later on, I was like, you know, then how about dying and making me a lot of money? Just he, he's like every every line is delivered at that test. Or another rather grossly like, I am gagging for it, which is a, a line that I've unfortunately had in my head for the last few days, and now you have it in your head. You're welcome. Oh, curse. <laughs> yeah, it's the character. That, 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 whole, that, that whole scene between, is what's the guy's name? Hugh? Hugh, yeah. Like, I do, well, why is this henchman so concerned with uh, Ambrose's sex life? <laughs> it's such a weird, like, weird scene, and Ambrose is so insulted by that he chops his finger off. It's it's so random and so just like charged because and then because the whole thing's about his like his sex drive and Ambrose is just like seething and boiling over it. It's so weird. It I mean it feels like yeah. like high school boys arguing. Only this time they actually have the strength and tools to cut each other's fingers off. <laughs> it's yeah. With his character There is no character. Well, exactly. Uh and that's to no fault of Dougie Scott. He's he is playing this character to the best of his ability and he makes it fun. Like you said, probably the the biggest the biggest reason I enjoy it is because of his incredibly thick Scottish accent. But like every single thing, even lines that shouldn't be like these intense monologues are intense monologues. There's there's no such thing as a conversation with this guy. <laughs> there's there's never a line spoken in a normal voice and and I guess in this movie that might be a good thing because the second they start taking the villain seriously, it it's just not gonna work. So it's probably how he pronounces every syllable. <laughs> oh yeah. Every single one you've gotta know that the next syllable has started. Um, so maybe he had a better sense of awareness of what this movie was than anybody else. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, yeah, like normally we you know, we talk about you know narrative, and I feel like all everything I have to say about either character arcs or narrative in this film is a negative one. So getting to the core of the narrative, uh, what is the plot of this movie, James? I have no idea. It's so funny. And people say like. Oh, they 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 took the negative reaction to the overly complicated plot of the first Mission Impossible: The Heart and gave us a really simple, straightforward film for the second one. No, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah, it's weird because honestly, now that I've seen both films several times, the first one just goes by super easy for me. I I follow most of the beats fairly well. I mean, yes, it is. It's too complicated, but not to the point to where once you get like once you watch it a couple times, you're like, okay, I get this. There are so many things happening in this movie. I'm like, wait, why? He has this, but he did this, and now they're after him because they thought they had this, but really this person did. Like, it's there's so many times where the momentum and the objective is moved. It's like we're doing this, but wait, this happened, so now we're doing this, and it's explained in such quick, snappy dialogue that I get to the point where I almost, I almost just tune out of the actual plot if there is one, and just wait for some, something flashy to happen because trying to keep up with where the plot is moving, it it almost becomes tedious. Yeah. So going back to the very beginning, you have the doc, the doctor. I can't, I, I cannot pronounce whatever his name is supposed to be in this film. I'm just gonna call him the doctor. You have the doctor monologuing about you know. 
The search for every hero requires a villain, which th- th- this is how you don't do like a kind of mythological symbolism, like by ha- mentioning it twice and forgetting it for the rest <laughs> of the movie. But so is that like he he tried to create a cure-all, but to create a cure-all, he had to make create the worst disease imaginable as well, mm-hmm. I guess. And then Brendan Gleeson, who plays uh, the, the company man named McCloy planned to use that for nefarious purposes so the, so the doctor injected himself with the virus chimera as well as se- stealing several vials of the cure bellerophon and tried to escape with the help of dimitri which why is ethan hunt called dimitri i don't know and it's implied they have a long friendship none of that <laughs> none of which is explained but then that turned out to be ambrose and he kills him intending to steal the cure and the disease Am I you tracking that that far? <laughs> I, I think so. And there's to its to its favor a, a bit of that that I do like is the idea that they couldn't contact Ethan and they sent in Ambrose disguised as him because he was the guy he requested, and then he took that opportunity, like to end up taking it for himself. That's kind of a cool setup. And and then actually the one bit of characterization they do give for uh, uh for Ambrose is that he's a. <laughs> And another unfortunate play of words. He's always getting his gun off. Uh, and so, like, he's he's an inherently violent person. So he starts he he kills the doctor, not knowing that the doctor is the one carrying the uh, the disease. And I love how you know Cruz kind of rubs that in his face later on. You know, if you you weren't always shooting people, you might actually have gotten what you wanted. And that like that's a clever little plot point. Yeah, it's just most of the movie doesn't share that cleverness. Yeah, and so but after this, I whatever was. What was the relationship between Ambrose and McCloy prior to this? Was there? Like the whole, I don't understand what the entire thing of, so he has the cure, but he doesn't have the disease. But does McCloy no longer have the cure? Does he no longer have any access to the cure? Was the doctor able to, like, was the doctor able to steal all of it? And also, if the doctor was able to steal vials of the cure, was he not able to steal also steal vials of the disease? It felt like... Actually, you know, now that you ask it, I don't even know the answer to that question. And, and so, like, the whole thing about, like, what are the, like, what what was Ambrose's plan before, like, towards the end, you know, Ethan is going to destroy the disease, so Ambrose has to go and stop him. Okay, I get that, but, like, why is Ambrose involved in any of this? And if McCloy has the disease, why is he trying to buy it? Like, wh- why was he ever in contact with Ambrose? Like, he had the disease. Why did he need to go to a, to an arms dealer? That's the only thing I'm wondering. Is it stated that that the doctor was able to escape with the only thing, like the, all of the cure that they had left? If that makes, if that's it, then is he? And I feel like I need to rewatch it. <laughs> and I just watched it. That's not a great sign. No, it, it's this information is simply not given. Maybe it is given in the uh, in the director's cut, but it's just not here. Like, who has what and why? Because literally, the plot of this movie is a guy wants to sell a disease to the guy who created the disease. That's it. But it, like, couldn't he just make more? Like, you know, ostensibly they have all the research. I don't know. It, it's just. Like the the, the the whole plot, like once you think about it at all, doesn't hold up at every step of the way. We just kind of wonder, like, what are their motivations? What are they trying to get out of this? And it just doesn't work. And then on top of that, 
There's a reason that every single Mission Impossible film, you know, one, three, four, five, and six, all of them have the Ethan Hunt's team disavowed. And the reason is because if they're not disavowed, they can just call in backup, which at every stage of this film, all the way up to the third, no, even in the third act, Ethan Hunt and, and the team know exactly where Ambrose is and what his plans are. And they never go in and grab, like, why don't they send in a SEAL team to grab him? There was, there's, and like, why are they, you know, a disease with the possibility of to kill millions of people who is in danger of escaping. And yet they assign three people to it. <laughs> and like, they're so understaffed that literally no one's watching on, you know, the one person they can track Naya until she literally walks into the building they're trying to rob. Uh, like you couldn't have some, you know, analyst, uh, just, you know, looking at the computer screen, you know, isn't there a, I don't know, man. <laughs> Yeah, so two things that I noticed, not for the better this time around, was that was that it I, I don't understand what we're moving towards. I don't understand where the momentum is. There are so many points where I'm like, just get him. Like you you know what's happening. You're fully aware. And what exactly is it that changes by the time you act that wasn't there before? It feels like uh, an hour and a half went by. That's what happened. Exactly. So we're just sticking with the exact same narrative following through numerous inconsequential plot points to finally arrive at a conclusion that by all accounts could have and should have probably happened earlier. The other thing that I really don't understand is the reveal of like them stealing the memory card and what they learn from it is that Chimera has a 20 hour dormant period before it causes death. That is information we're told in the at the very beginning of the film. You know, he he says I, 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 I don't I don't think they even knew about Chimera before they got that. I don't think they know about any of that, either the cure or the disease. It, as best as I'm aware. Oh, no, actually, no, because wasn't or, I thought the doctor mentioned all of that on his video he sent to them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so to me, it's yeah. like he's saying you have to get me within 20 hours because I've got this disease and the cure has to be administered before there. So they start with this information, then they pull the they take out the memory card and look at it and they're like oh, chimera only has a 20 hour period before it's like wait we knew is that what this is about i i feel like they were trying to go for that kind of spy thriller with it was a grand conspiracy because you know they go and kidnap mccloy and you know they they tell and they go and interrogate him in the hospital bed and we and we he talks about having infected the other dog i feel like there's probably like 10 minutes of footage with the doctor in the beginning of the film establishing you know setting up these relationships and setting up these characters including the Sergate guy who was the one they test like because all of this information is thrown around like it's something we are somewhat familiar with but the thing is so like that might explain you know the scene where they get the confession from him but i just i don't understand the point of stealing the the car at the horse race i guess to give naya something to do <laughs> to me to like, mess up <laughs> well exactly everything like they walk away from that situation with a mess up and no more information, yet the movie treats it like a reveal. Like, Ethan and Luther are like, oh my goodness, look at this thing. It's like, you were told about this at the beginning of the movie. Like, explicitly. It just, it to me, all it, like, the the most... I, I guess they, they now know what Ambrose knows, and they know who McCloy is and how he plays into the picture. I guess. Except they like, have to kidnap McCloy to interrogate him. But yeah, so none <laughs> of that information is gathered from this chip that they, like... Which ended up like you know steal or the, the stealing this memory card is what compromised the mission. So, to me, 
the movie has to tell us that like whatever is on this oh, card. Oh, actually, no, I get, I get it now. They, we are not told what Chimera is. All of that, all of the the uh, this the video that Ethan watches at the beginning with Anthony Hopkins, all of that is just um, him doing that mythological mumbo jumbo. Like we think Chimera might be this, and we think Bellerophon might be this. Oh. It is only when they watch that video they realize, okay, we are talking about a killer virus. I guess that makes more sense. That's what that's what it's accomplishing. The f- the fact that we have to talk for ten minutes to try and figure this out is an issue. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think we've kind of gotten into just why the plot for this film. It's it's just I think it's just boring. The, the second act of this film, barring the lab gunfight, is just boring. The drama is like the, the whatever melodrama is there it doesn't work because you know because Ethan and Naya are separate. And it's also filled with all the unco- uncomfortable sexual politics of, of what they're doing. But also the plot itself just doesn't make any sense and it doesn't play out in a way that keeps you engaged. So it's like you, a solid first act, one great action scene in the second act, and then this third act is where the movie really comes together in my opinion. <laughs> so yeah, it's just the as a narrative, as a drama, I think this film pretty unequivocally fails. But the thing about watching a John Woo film is that neither of those are really the focus in his movies. And what is the focus is awesome slow-mo stunts and fire and explosions and gunfights. And I think once this movie gets into the third act, I, I, I kind of love it. Just the scenes where Ethan is infiltrating and taking out the guards, the, the slow-mo flip kick to the guy's ribs, just so just completely ridiculous and unnecessary. But I, Tom Cruise has a really good physicality. I think he sells all of those things. I love the scene where... Uh, where he's got the guard, he punches him, he puts his hand over his mouth, and he's talking talking to Luther, and then he punches him again, and he, like, rolls down the wall, and he goes up to him, and at, the whole time just talking to Luther, and goes up and elbows him through the door, like, once it all goes down, and Hugh goes out to fight him, and then, I think, pro, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he, when, when he, bring, when Hugh brings Tom back, tied up and, you know, gagged, and, he goes and shoots him and then the music gets all the music is like blaring and this like epic chanting as Ambrose is slowly realizing what he has done. And then the mu then the, the electric guitar is kicking as you cut to Tom Cruise running out. It's just I think like that scene, like the scene in uh, in the lab, is John Woo like using all the tools, using like using the music, using the editing, the, the cinematography all to tell this I mean very overblown and ridiculously cheesy story. But still, I think it, it it just it still gets you. It gets me every time. I just love the way he builds that, like the slow doubt of, oh wait, did I actually kill him? And oh no, it was my friend, and he screams. It's so it's like so big and Shakespearean, but in a very cheesy John Woo way. But I love it. Yeah, it's it's completely ridiculous. It's a it's also especially the first time for me. It struck me as like almost uncharacteristically dark. Like that Ethan would tie up a man and send him to his death like that just feels weird. He deserved it. Oh, he absolutely deserved it. It's just, it feels like one of the ways, even in this film, um, that this series kind of intentionally differentiates Hunt from Bond is that like, he's just, he's got a genuine heart. You know, like you got the lines like, you know, he would he'd rather do all of these theatrics than risk that, you know, harming one hair on these, these guards. And I get like, this guy isn't a guard. He's a bad guy and Hunt kills bad guys. This is the way it's done. Just feel like where he's lying on the ground screaming, unable to really vo- voice anything. It just feels super morbid. Uh, but, you know, even without a side, it's not 
the movie is so jarring totally going from like this weird melodrama to all of this weird stuff like it it doesn't lose me at all and i do like the way the film or the scene is shot where we get the realization like four seconds into the music really rising but we've got like 20 more seconds of the music rising (laughs) after everybody already knows what this means and usually that would really grate me but here it's just like so over the top and i i've lost the ability to take it seriously that i just i enjoy the fun of the scene and then i think then you know he runs out and he goes into a i think a pretty awesome motorcycle chase you know everyone talks about the, the motorcycle chase in rogue nation and then fallout but i think this one is is pretty good it's it's, it's totally john woo you know riding slow-mo through fire which that's a that's a great shot. I don't care what you think about it. It's a great shot. That that's very iconic and it's it's deservingly so. Yeah, but the the, the whole time you the, the electric guitar is playing and surf you know sliding his feet on the ground beside the bike. Oh. <laughs> Sh- shooting out of the mirror, like shooting Oh, I hate it. Like See, the, the, for the entire the entirety of the last 20 minutes of this movie, I just like curled up giggling you know, because a lot of it I think is objectively great action filmmaking and the rest of it is it's like so stupid it's hilarious and all of it just kind of comes together to make it fun and then you know the final the final amazing set piece oh, when, when they do their little their, when they charge at each other on the motorcycles <laughs> jump into the air and collide in the air as their motorcycles collide and explode beneath them Oh, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Every time I see that, I just laugh out loud because it is so absurd. But it's like so but also like very well shot and well realized and well staged. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Oh, that's the thing. It it's well made, but for me this is also where like the the idea that we we even seen in the comments that we read earlier is that this movie borders parody often and and the stuff of like shooting through the mirror i feel like would fit at home in a movie like the naked gun or something where it's just (laughs) it feels like they took the truth of the statement that like action movies are so over the top and the the heroes are too overpowered they took that and then they just completely exaggerated where he's like he's skidding on his shoes on a motorcycle and he's shooting through his mirror like i I see Leslie Nielsen doing that in my head right now, and it makes sense. And so, to me, this isn't this isn't the kind of stuff that, like, okay, that's a bit ridiculous, so it makes sense to parody that. Like, this is the parody. It's just so over the top. And you just gotta like, laugh along with it. Oh, and that's the thing. I do laugh along with it. That's why I don't hate watching the film. And at it. Oh, yeah, and that's the thing. My laughter comes at the film, not all the time with it. Yeah, and I, th- I, I think bo- bo- both, laugh, you know, enjoying the film and laughing at it, just they flow so closely together and so intertwined, they can't really be separated if you're going to enjoy this film. You, you just got to find that perfect wavelength within yourself to connect with it. Um, however, that the last fight between them, I think, is a legitimately great fight scene. You know, Wu has this, like, beautiful, gorgeous shots are like spinning around them i think the slow-mo is really well used also just they're both dressed in black on white sand and like the bluest sky you've ever seen so they really stand out i don't under like how Wu is able to get some of the shots just the way his camera movement accentuates the motion is just like i think masterful and that entire fight it's so brutal and the choreography is so ridiculously over the top and and you can actually like tom cruise is doing 
some pretty elaborate things. Like some of the kicks he does, like revolving like an entire flip. I don't like. I don't even know physically how you do that. Like normally, any other film would have cut th- would have had to cut three times to get Tom Cruise to go through some of these elaborate kicks, but he does them in these like single shots, and it's it's just impressive from a pure physicality level. Oh yeah, like Tom Cruise sells everything he does, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed this so much more now than I did before because. You know, like two, three years ago, I was very happily on board the like, let's just make fun of Tom Cruise train. But since that time, I've actually come to really, really, really love Tom Cruise. And so now watching it, I'm I'm very impressed by a lot of what he's able to do. Um, some of my problems with this fight scene, though, I just... I will hear no problems and, with this fight scene. Well, <laughs> you you will hear mine. It It jumps too sporadically between being brutal and being laughable welcome to john woo baby for some reason and i think it's just it's the consistency in a movie like hard-boiled it's brutal and crazy over the top all at the same time from start to finish this whole movie just feels so jarring and i feel like this one this fight scene kind of encapsulates a lot of that where it's like okay that that made me cringe because of how much that looked like it hurt. And now he looks like he's reenacting Mortal Kombat finishing moves. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just constantly, it's back and forth. Hey, of like, Mortal what? Kombat finishing moves really hurt, too. <laughs> oh, ex- they're very, very brutal. But I'm just waiting for, like, the kind of, like, ridiculous over-the-top, you know, sound effects that come with it. And so it just, it feels like it's do it. It's walking this weird line, and not very well, in my opinion, between, like, goofy and brutal and it doesn't feel like a marriage of the two it just feels like the two are going back and forth i could not disagree more <laughs> but i guess i get it um but all, speaking of we haven't talked about tom cruise and his stunts but there's a, a another really famous stunt is when ambrose comes at him with the knife and it's and tom cruise stops it like a quarter inch from his eye where you can see it's like touching his eyelashes that was done with a real knife and supposedly, uh, Duke Ray Scott was putting all his weight on. It was it was attached to a steel cable to keep it obviously from impaling his head. But like it's, it, it is uncomfortably close how, how how near to his eye they get, and it's all done for real. And they were really proud of that stunt. Um, but overall, like uh, it deservedly so because that scene really like I'm I'm laughing at the whole movie, and then that happens, and all of a sudden I tense up. And at first I'm like, mm, this is just a bit much, and then like. The knife, you can tell. At first, I was like, "It's it's just a fake. It's a pro- it's I, I don't know what it is. Just some sort of weird trickery." And then, it, like, it moves past his eyelash, and you can see that it actually like it's making contact with that. And it's like, it's ooh, it made me really uncomfortable <laughs> in in the way it's meant to. Yeah, and there's like, a lot of cool stunts in this movie. Like Tom Cruise was actually climbing the cliffs in the beginning. You know, he I mean, he obviously had a cable on, but he was still doing all of the free climbing himself. Like he really jumped across that ledge to the other ledge. Like all, all of that is real. Like that, that that's pretty impressive. Um, then. It, yeah. And, uh, there was a, a line from one of the members of the crew who was like, like, like naturally we just, we had to have him, you know, on a cable. However, in hindsight, it wasn't needed because he never messed up. We just, he went out there, he climbed, we shot it, we moved on. Like, Mm-hmm. He might as well have been, you know, cable free. Yeah. Another really impressive stunt is the uh, is when he when they're when he's dropping off the helicopter through the through the vents. Like he he drops down like a hundred feet towards the camera and stops like two feet away. Like it's a really cool shot. But uh, like that was you know that was all done for real. And I feel like that was practice for the, the skydiving scene from um 
fallout where he has to glide up to the glide up to the camera with his face. And, and watching the behind the scenes, like just like the first one, everyone in like all the only beside the only behind the scenes footage I could find for this movie was all about, oh my gosh, Tom Cruise and these studs and the crew is like, he's crazy. He's just crazy. John Woo said on multiple occasions he was just so uncomfortable shooting so much of it because he's like, he's going to get himself killed and I'm going to get the blame. <laughs> uh, it makes sense. I'd, I'd freak out if I was watching any of this actually happen. So uh, we skipped around a lot, but I, I feel like we kind of covered everything we want. We really wanted to talk about with this movie. So uh, just for kind of final thoughts, what, what, is, what is your overall perception of this movie, James? So... It's a movie that I can put on with the group and enjoy, you know. And like you said, enjoying the movie on its like based on its own merits along with laughing at it kind of go together where sometimes the movie's not always asking you to laugh at it, but a lot of times it's kind of in on the ridiculousness. And so once we get to the action, it's it's a fun time. Um it's just we go for so many periods of, or for so long a time between pieces of action and during that dead time, it's a boring plot that's barely existent with these really weird misogynistic themes and, and it, like explicitly misogynistic lines being said by both the good guys and the bad guys um, that as a whole, I, I just can't come down in a, a mostly positive light. Um, and a lot of that is because the action doesn't work for me all the time the same way it does for you. So... Um, fun enough time it's not worth actually skipping if you're doing a marathon but i very much watched that for the sake of getting to three <laughs> yeah and for me, i actually do come in the end i come positive i spent a lot of time criticizing but still i something about this movie just sinks with my my love of just stupid over-the-top b movies done well i think this is kind of similar between where where I I really like uh, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, and you can enjoy it. I think, I think when you have a dumb B movie that is just so cheesy and over the top, but has the budget and skill <laughs> to pull itself off, something about it just really works for me. And e- even though I think there are there are a couple fairly boring stretches, whenever John Woo is just allowing his style to come through, I'm either just laughing at the film, which in which case I'm entertained. Or I'm like legitimately in awe of the great filmmaking on in display, which I am also entertained. And I think b- both of those those just kind of mesh together for me to where I, I'm having kind of having I'm kind of having fun for most of the movie. And I think the l- entire last half hour is pretty amazing. And so a good ending will fix a lot about a, a, a bad movie. So for, for me, uh, I, I come to uh, three stars out of five. Um, I just, just the the fun factor pushes it over into a positive, despite the fact that I completely understand if someone thinks it's a bad movie because they're not entirely wrong. And what what, what what's your star rating out of five, James? Honestly, I I feel like I do end up coming down more negative than positive, so I just I go two out of five. <sighs> um, I I can appreciate what what Wu does well with the action, but to me, uh, for me, a, a star rating is just it it applies to the entirety of a film and despite my appreciation for some of the stunts i just think the plot is really terrible it's got stuff that just makes me feel weird what like just the misogynistic stuff that feels somewhat like it, it runs throughout up until the end uh just really puts me off and the 
we, there's so many points in the movie where I do find myself like actively bored and, and really struggling to pay attention that by the time we get to the good stuff, it's, it's not enough to win me over to a positive side. You hurt me, James. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I spent years and years hating this movie, so I, to- I totally get that. And really quickly, I do want to t- talk about a Hans Zimmer score for this film. James, do you get a chance to listen to it? Uh, I listened to most of it. Um, I think it's a good score. I think it's consistently better than the film. Um, although it, it's weird for me to just sit and enjoy it for what it is, just because of how similar it is to Gladiator. And <laughs> and even it's really there are multiple moments where it very much sounds like his work in the Dark Knight trilogy with the kind of consistent beats. Hmm. Um, I didn't get that at all. The kind of like the na 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 like that is almost identical huh. um, here. And so a lot of the time I'm just like, oh, this sounds like what he did here and, and here. And it, it, it's okay to borrow from yourself. But to me, especially if it, it works well for the movie. And and so I'm I'm not a huge fan of a lot of guitar-heavy scores, maybe outside of Fury Road, um, especially since I just like the, the, sm- uh, the smooth, cool, typical MI soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the first one score. Uh, but that wouldn't have worked here well. So there's not really a lot of standout tracks to me, but it, it was good for what it was, and I think it worked well with the film. Well, I absolutely love the score. I, I think I actually like it better than the first one. Like The first one, I think Elfman's uh, you know remix of the, the original TV show's theme is brilliant, and it, it fits the film very well. You know, he, he, he matches the kind of paranoia of the first film. But here Zimmer you know, is, you know, given permission for, because of how crazy the film is to just go all out with this really loud, brash and over the top electric guitar style over the entire film. And I just, I just like, like the film, I just love it when it's, when it's all coming together. So for, for me, I actually do have a lot of tracks I enjoy. Uh, the first one is Hijack. It's this really fun synth rhythm that then explodes into the bombastic electric guitar theme for this, the film. Uh, then there's Seville, which is Spanish guitars, and who doesn't like Spanish guitars? Uh, Naya is, it's like a slow, it's the character's main theme. It's like a slower, more contemplative uh, use of the Spanish guitars. It's a very pretty piece of music. Uh, then there's Injection. Um, and this and the track Bear Island are, are, are probably my favorite part of this soundtrack. And maybe like some of my favorite music in the series. Uh, like a, as... Naya injects herself, the gladiator vocals coming at full force and the guitar is blaring and everything like the, the, like the, the, the glad, I'm just gonna keep calling them gladiator vocals. The gladiator vocals underlined by the electric guitar and the synth score. Uh, it's just amazing for me. And, and, and that is the point in the film where I feel like all, all aspects of story, like Wu style, the plot, the characters and the emotion, all of it is actually like working for the first time in like a full hour. So I really love that music. And then Bear Island is where you have the big operatic vocals and electric guitar that kind of flow into the big uh, bombastic Mission Impossible theme as Ethan runs out. Just that that whole – and then the next few minutes is just pure, just like rock music joy as the motorcycle chase ensues. I don't know. That, that, just that whole section of film is just pure joyful uh, as far as from a musically perspective for me. And then finally, uh, Mission Accomplished. This is, I think, a really, really good piece of music. It's a, me- a melody that blends like Naya's quiet Spanish guitars with a, <laughs> a much subtler version of Ethan's electric guitars, and they kind of play together. And it's a bit, I find it like a very 
like very nice, uh, beautiful, uh, poetic and cathartic piece of music kind of as to close out the soundtrack. I think this is a track that's probably going to go into one of my regular rotations. Uh, it just feels so cathartic and nice, uh, nice to me. So yeah, overall, a big thumbs up for the soundtrack. Uh, I think it, it, it just, it feels, it's so bombastic, but it feels perfectly in, in line with everything this film is. So moving uh, into the box office, uh, domestically, it grossed $215 million, Then it grossed $330 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $546 million on its $125 million budget. Domestically, it's the second highest grossing film in the series after Fallout. Uh, and the third highest grossing film domestically of 2000 after uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Castaway. But worldwide, it is the highest grossing film uh, of 2000 by actually quite a large margin. I'm actually surprised that uh, that uh, Gladiator wasn't number one that year. It was actually like number four. That is weird because, and I guess it's just because we're so far removed um, and it was such a big deal at the time, but <laughs> Mission Impossible 2 just feels like this weird little side note in film history but gladiator is like it's very well remembered so the the initial critical reaction was i think pretty similar to where you are james you know it's it's kind of fun but also it's loud and dumb and stupid and like it, it holds a 56 percent on rotten tomatoes and a 59 on metacritic so pretty down the middle weirdly though i'm on the fan like t- today there seem to be like two like diametrically opposed reactions to this film one is, oh, it's a terrible movie, you know, the worst in the series. Like, a lot of people just think it's an outright horrible film. But there's also, it seems to be a, kind of a growing uh, minority who is like, Mission Impossible 2 is actually kind of great, guys. And, you know, every year I see more and more kind of think pieces. Wait, Mission Impossible 2, is it underrated? You know, is this, like, is this film secretly great? Like, it does seem that people are kind of coming around and appreciating just how big and stupid and bombastic it all is. So... So I, I guess you would say it's kind of like moving into a kind of a cult classic phase, even though a lot of people also just think it's absolute trash. And then there's guys like me who are just kind of right down the middle. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that, that was Mission Impossible 2. What a crazy film, dude. Yeah, super weird. And, and you know, it's fun enough to talk about. If anything, it gives you a lot to talk about. So, you know, an enjoyable episode, in my opinion. Uh, so, guys, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please take a moment to go and give us a rating review on iTunes. And if you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as Franchised Pod. And if you want to find out other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? So you can follow me primarily on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamries, J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, as well as join the Facebook group Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. Uh, you and I are both there along with some other friends as admins. Um, and, you know, getting into 2019, there is a lot of Star Wars happening. So if you want to continue your love of Star Wars but without getting bogged down by the absurd amount of negativity surrounding the fanbase right now, feel free to join us there. I am also on Letterboxd. I am there as Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am there as Gabe A. Green. And then I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And so next week, dude, we have Mission Impossible 3. This is going to be a three-hour episode. I'm calling it right now. I absolutely, unequivocally love this movie, so I am dying to talk about this. Yeah, I, d- I don't think I qu- love it quite as much as you, but I also you will. have only seen you a- will. 
Well, so I've seen it only the once, and it was with a group, and so I think by just being able to see it by myself and really focus in, I'm probably going to enjoy it a lot more this time. So, until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Get my Scottish accent on. You know, that was the hardest part about having to betray you, Hunt. Grinning like an idiot every 15 minutes.